0: better questions, I think. <laughs> Often better questions is is the best thing you can encounter or conjure, and that's universal in life. Cross runway 13, runway 17, proceed straight out, air to below 3000, Please take off. All right, hey there. Welcome to Airtime, a Sky Review podcast. Don Jones, Right here, from the compound. (laughs) Welcome. I skipped all of last month, did not do an episode, because I'm forehead deep in becoming a certified flight instructor, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah, pretty heavy month last month of getting through the big, deep middle of things, and uh, I felt like I'm kind of coming out the other side. I've uh, rifled through a whole bunch of ground stuff with with my CFIs helping me along here. And uh, got my teeth sunk in the flying bits, and uh, pretty comfortable on the right side of the airplane, getting getting my groove on the uh, right seat, flying and talking and instructing and changing controls and seeing and void and maintaining uh, all the safety of the flight, and uh, and noticing when uh, when she does something peculiar, <laughs> and going, hey, uh, why don't you put those feet somewhere near the rudder? <laughs> Things like that wow that's a death defying gaze you have on the instrument panel you know this is a visual maneuver right all right anyway um yeah so we're we're having some fun and, and making some progress coming up on this episode of airtime it's episode eight of airtime a sky review podcast my uh, right seed landings and uh, a, a little bit of uh, i had to kind of deconstruct them put them back together a little bit have, having some progress there but man it was uh a little bit frustrating for a minute and i'll tell you kind of what i discovered um i don't know i should say probably mostly rediscovered Uh, it was kind of interesting and uh, had a little bit of a uh camp out in the poh uh that was kind of interesting i'll i'll show that too on airtime a sky review podcast hang on All right, Airtime, a Sky Review podcast. My pleasure. Okay, things are looking up, right? Uh, I hope. I hope we are uh, on to new and wonderful, bigger, better, putting Humpty Dumpty back together uh, economically and, and things after uh, big, giant COVID. Uh, lots of vaccinations going on, so um, hopefully we're turning the corner and 2021. is going to be a fantastic year. Yeah, working through my CFI thing, uh, let's see. The last thing I did as far as ground was um, I did uh, the, my one of my topics was high altitude operations. Um, it's funny about that because I, I just don't have much experience up in the higher altitudes where oxygen is needed. So it's one of the few areas now of uh, subject matters where. I feel stupid teaching it because, you know, I'm basically parroting things I've read and memorized. Okay. It's funny because I remember back, you know, when you get started becoming a pilot, basically almost everything is that. And, and then finally, if you just keep being a student of aviation, you keep marking things off. Or it's like, you, instead of knowing about it, you know, you know that, you know, it. it's something you take in and it becomes part of you. Um So yeah, it's kind of, that's fulfilling. However, uh, high altitude ops is one of those areas where I'm like, let me tell you about how the oxygen control uh, systems, uh, let's take a look at this picture. (laughs) This knob is labeled. Anyway, um, that's okay. I have a good imagination. I actually have some plans to rectify that. Um, I think so far, if you look at the CFI PTS, I'm pretty far down into the technical subject area as far as the ground bit. I'm, I'm simultaneously. So do, basically, we have a stint and I do two lessons. I do one from the fundamentals of instruction and one from the technical subject areas. So I only have one FOI a bit left to do is risk management. So far, honestly, out of the technical subject areas, I think I, I really like stability, maneuverability. I like those topics and, and basically just aerodynamics at large, um, weight and balance. I like that. I enjoy it. I haven't done my weather ground lesson yet. I do like weather a lot. I, I have a lot of weather books. I, I do a lot of digging personally, just I do find it fascinating and, and it behooves a pilot to always be a student of weather ad infinitum, right? But those are some high points, I think, at least so far um, that I really do, do enjoy. And of course, um, I'm obligated to say I really enjoy <laughs> my favorite of everything is landings because they're not optional, right? So they kind of have to be your favorite, or at least you have to be fanatical about wanting to know more about them. And I am, especially if you switch sides of the airplane and start trying to do very specific kind of landings. Um, it, it's one thing to say, okay, can you get it safely on the ground when there's relatively no wind or not a significant crass wind and, and do a normal landing? But it's, it's a little different when you go, okay, well, teach a normal landing from the right seat. Okay, then go uh, go around let's let's do uh, a short field with a 50 foot obstacle and, and let's uh, pick our landing spot and nail it on, not before or at least within a couple hundred feet of it, and then power off 180s at the commercial flavor, things like that. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about just being able to fly the airplane from the right seat and land it safely. Um, the target is much more narrow so then it starts to reveal things and it was interesting what i discovered about landings and i kind of had to take them apart and start to put them back together which i think ultimately is going to be good for my left seat flying too honestly and i'll tell you about those things i discovered or rediscovered coming up next All right, it's airtime, the Sky Review Podcast. I'm Don Jones. I am working on my flight instructor certificate. I am a commercial pilot. I do not fly for a living at this point. Um, I do have an advanced ground instructor certificate. Yes, I'm steeped in aviation fanaticism. Sure. All right, <clears throat> switching to the right seat of the airplane and insisting on uh, getting good at landing from the right seat. Um, Here's what's interesting. I I did some landings uh, with one of our—I'm in a flying club, so I did some landings. I had done several and gotten fairly comfortable in the right seat just flying around and and doing some landings. In the evenings with calm wind, relatively calm wind, not too challenging. But I did notice that uh, if you had some wind or crosswind, I started to have a little trouble keeping things dialed in. Turns out as I dug into that, the landings had become so sort of innate from the left seat that I, you know, it was just automatically doing the things that you're supposed to do as far as perceiving um, height and point to flare and how fast and all that, you know, it just becomes sort of baked in and automatic. And the problem is you change hands and uh, change the perspective over in the right seat. And all of a sudden this thing that was automatic, you know, you're just isn't isn't there the same way at least it hasn't been or wasn't initially for me so i had some kind of you know okay that landing was okay but really not up to my my personal standards and and also i didn't feel like i was getting the consistency i wanted either i you know didn't have the command of the of the landing from the right seat and i remember when i did my private pilot license I hit a pretty good plateau back then, and there was a lot of just extreme repetitive practicing. And and of course, there's a point at which that can become counterproductive. And I didn't want to do that with this. And the difference is I have a lot of information and understanding at my disposal. So, and that really just leads to better questions. I think (laughs) often better questions is, is the best thing you can um, encounter or conjure. And that's universal in life, I think. So I started sort of taking the landing apart, talking about sitting at home, you know, and kind of searching around the internet. I was like, what's what's all the wisdom that's out there people have to give? And uh, anyway, I I encountered some interesting things here and there. I think um, one of which, um, I think this is the first one I encountered when I started doing this recently, um, was Rod Machado's. He's got a YouTube video and he talks about It is several, obviously several videos on on landings and and perfecting your landings and mastering them and whatever. But this one particular video, I don't think I had seen before by Rod, but it was talking about your dominant eye. I don't remember ever considering that. And uh, so I was intrigued. And then it was like, okay, how do I determine which one's my dominant eye? I'd I'd seen this before, um, the dominant eye thing, but not in terms of landing. And I thought, oh, well, okay, that's kind of a deal. That's, that's a thing. That's, that's relevant. You've switched sides of the airplane. If you were in a tandem aircraft, no big deal, but you've switched sides of the airplane. So, which one's my dominant eye? But interestingly, I am left handed. And typically, I think for most people, their dominant eye is the same as their handedness, as I understand it. Okay. And then occasionally you'll have people who it's opposite. Their dominant eye is opposite from their handedness. And such is the case with me. I am left handed. I do many, many things right-handed. All right, bat, ball, shoot, gun, fork, and knife. I can literally switch back and forth and do switch back and forth multiple times in one meal. Other things I'm not as ambidextrous on. Anyway, turns out my dominant eye is my right eye, but I'm left-handed. Interestingly, my wife is also switched as well. She's, we tested two different methods and, and just to confirm and, uh, She's right-handed, but her left eye is unquestionably dominant. So that's fascinating. And and the the point of that ultimately was that, uh, you know, you need to make sure that you've got that dominant eye where it's getting a good look at things because that dominant eye is going to give you more fidelity of depth perception and uh, speed and things like that. Well, that's a big deal. So that's fascinating. It's one fascinating thing. You can search it on YouTube. It'll come at lickety-split from uh, Rod Machado. Then um, um if you're not familiar with uh, Jason Miller, he's out in California. He's a uh, career flight instructor. He's been doing it a, a long time full-time. That's that's his gig. So he's he's uh collected a lot of deep wisdom and a lot of tricks of the trade and he does a thing called the finer points in in podcast form. He's on Instagram, he's everywhere. And I regularly, uh, I listen to everything he puts out on on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, they're usually relatively short, but they're usually really, really chock full of of uh, good wisdom. As opposed to this podcast, which is me just rambling <laughs> about things that I've encountered in the last bit. It's my deal, so I can do that. Anyway, um, I, I did a little digging around. And, 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 of course, he's got a bunch of stuff on YouTube as well. And I watched a video I had seen by him before about where he's basically just reverse engineering the landing. It's like, what what are the parts that go together? You know, basically the five five components and the various things you need to have in hand. And it's, it's the stuff you know, like the stabilized approach. Um, and he's very serious about the aim point and the round out, the flare, okay? And then switching, you know, so you have your initial aim point, which is that's where you're looking. And then you round out flare and your eyes go to the end of the runway. So you have a second visual target you're looking at for judgment. And then he also has that, uh, your peripheral vision, of course, is giving you an information as well. That was really good. But, you know, in that video, I, I'd seen it before probably more than once. And But he made a reference to something that I um, didn't pick up on before. He mentioned something called the Jacobson flare. And he had a picture on there and a website. And I thought, wait a minute, what the heck is that? (laughs) And uh, so I I went down, you know, there we go down the internet rabbit hole. David Jacobson is a former uh, airline pilot, retired airline pilot from Australia. And he was a uh, airline instructor and then also a uh, general aviation instructor there. Teaching and reviewing both kinds of, of pilots. It's a very interesting story. He he noticed the same landing maladies on both sides of the fence. Same problem, same issues, and he basically took t- some trigonometry and kind of reverse engineered the landings uh, based on trigonometry. So you're looking at the triangle; it's like it makes a triangle. So how high you are above the uh, above the runway, your uh, aim point. You know that point down there that's not moving. So fundamentally you know it's at the aim point it's not moving up or down that's the point at which if you didn't flare the airplanes going to crash into the runway right there at that point um and then he bakes that into okay we're taught to judge hey about how high we are above the runway you flare and then hopefully squeak squeak but his case what he's presenting is that if instead of using the short side of the triangle which would be the height above the runway that you use the long side of the triangle to determine the flare point. And then, you know, in a light airplane, it's usually 80 or 100 feet before that. When that 80 or 100 feet before that starts to disappear by the cowling, that's when you start the flare and then you switch your eyes down to the end of the runway. I think this is the most maybe impactful thing in terms of selling this on a good way to teach landings is that if you look at the three degree glide path that this is based on, um, you have a one-twentieth ratio. That is to say that one foot is equal to 20 feet forward. So that's your, so one feet up. So that's your triangle, right? So if you cross the threshold at 10 feet, that's times 20, which means 200 feet forward. And and his point is that if you're judging height and you miss it by X amount, that error is multiplied times 20 in longitudinal perspective so when you're doing performance landings or you're doing very critical specific landings which are like i want to land on my point or at least within 100 or 200 feet beyond it and not before it you know that's a pretty small box so the the idea is that if that error is multiplied by 20 if you misjudge the height he's saying that if you use that point back before your aim point 80 or 100 feet or a bigger aircraft it may be 300 or 500 feet if there's a little error you you're it's divided by 20 because you're using the long side of the triangle and for most aircraft if you divide that error by 20 if it's not too far off that's negligible okay <laughs> that's pretty fantastic uh that got my attention i was like oh i actually re- did the math on it just to prove to myself about it i was like okay that makes sense it's just some basic trig I, th- I think I like it, and I think that uh, it makes sense. So um, I try to – I'm sometimes already switching between aircraft. So we're in a flying – I'm in a flying club. We have a 180-horsepower a stc would Cessna 172. So it uh, feels different, flares different. You know, it's – props got a lot of thrust. It's interesting. Um, and then I, sometimes I switch to a regularly decaffeinated non-alcoholic 172, and then sometimes I fly a Piper arrow one. I did try this the other day, just mechanically, just doing the, this, like he, this Jacobson fellow describes. And I hadn't flown the arrow in, in a bit and, uh, I put it on the mains rather softly nose high nose wheel off, you know? And, uh, so I, I like it. I, th- I think I like it. I, um, I, he is selling an app. Um, I did see some discussion on the some internet forums where they were kind of poo pooing the uh, concept. It's interesting that Jacobson. One of the things that he advocates is that this using this method it removes this trial and error bit uh, that's required, uh, or at least mo- removes a lot of it. And it's funny on some of the forums where they were sort of detractors. I thought it was funny. Some of the arguments were, well, you know, you just you just go out there and practice more. And it's funny, that's exactly one of his selling points is that, uh, yeah, but that's inefficient. And the issue is that uh, his his other selling point is then you take this concept and you take it to another airplane and it still works. And you take it to a different width runway and it still works. And you make it nighttime and it still works. So it kind of obfuscates some of those visual illusions and things like that so that's kind of cool especially at night if you're landing at a rural airport and you've got that black hole thing going on yeah keep you out of the weeds quite literally so that's kind of compelling as opposed to doing it over and over and over and over and again like he says once you switch aircraft or switch runways or change any variables suddenly you're you know having to work it out again if you will i think it's worth consideration i think it's a good way to look at the landings you look at them very analytically because because that is one thing about them is when you're first learning to land it uh, man it's just it's a real booger unless you're one of those unless you're one of those people that just had the right stuff maybe you were okay <laughs> so there's just something if you want to do um even if you're not wanting to become a flight instructor if you want to do something different switch sides of the airplane get a flight instructor and Make them sit in the left seat. That'll keep you busy for a minute, and it'll be a good challenge, even if it's an airplane you're very familiar with. Preferably, it would be. it start there. Okay, coming up on airtime, the Sky Review podcast. We'll peek at the uh, POH. Um, had an interesting one uh, when I did the pre-flight inspection and went over the documents and things that are required with uh, my CFI on one of those lesson days. Um, We kind of got camped out on a particular thing in my mnemonic for required documents in the airplane. I'll tell you about that coming up here on Airtime, a Sky Review podcast. All right, welcome back. Airtime, a Sky Review podcast. Uh, we're on all the platforms, uh, known to man, I think, intentionally on... Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, whatever they're calling it now. Airtime, a Sky Review podcast will come up. And on Spotify as well. And then a whole bunch of other platforms just automatically by sheer marvel of the internet, I guess. SkyReview.us on the web. You want hit me up there. Uh, this will be showing up on an article. There's a podcast page on the website. But then also there's there'll be an articles on the articles page. There'll be an accompanying article to this. Uh, you can comment there, anywhere, contact page. Skyreview.us. review.us. Okay. know, I encourage that. All right. Um, one of my lessons Let's see were I was going through the uh, pre-flight and, uh, I think I also did cockpit management on that one. Uh, but when we got to aircraft required documents and I had done this a little bit ago, you know, it used to be I mean, the, the stock mnemonic you see thrown around for aircraft doc- required documents is arrow, um, for airworthiness certificate registration, operating limitations and weight and balance. Now I have bloated mine out to be Sparrow. Okay. Um, So I put an S on the front. So then that makes it now part of that's because I'm in the flying club I'm in. We have a Cessna 172 that has a different engine, which changes the performance numbers. So we have an STC that has, you know, part of our you know, if you do performance calculations, part of our information comes from a new weight and balance we have, so the original stuff, but then is 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 negated, and then some of the POH, uh, the STC is primary, and then things that are not engine or performance related, the rest of the airplane, you have to go to the original POH, <laughs> three buckets you kind of have to ladle from. So I thought, you know what, that should be on the top of the aircraft required documents because that's where you got to get the goody. I mean, our weight and balance is different. Our um, engine speeds, takeoff, climb, cruise, fuel burn, all that. It's all different. Okay. Even the placards are different. There's a section two of the STC that has uh, placards required because they're a little different our STC, we did a flap limitation from 40 degrees to 30 degrees. It gave us a useful load increase, I think another 100 pounds or something. Anyway, so sparrow, which makes a nice, pleasant word. Who doesn't love birds? If you don't love birds, come on. Anyway, uh, so the S is for supplements, uh, supplemental type certificates. But supplements in general, that's not just STC. So you have other supplements like a newer WASH GPS in the aircraft there is required documentation that has to be added to the poh on behalf of that uh, wash gps we also have a g5 in the attitude indicator position subsequently there are uh, documents that have to be added to the poh binder for it as well so those supplemental documents now become part of the part of the biscuits and, and deserving of highlighting so they get their own letter right and then I added placards, so sparrow, so I've got an S and a P at the top. So that's in section two. It's under limitations in the POH under section two. And that's your standard POH layout, which is I believe nineteen seventy five forward. Anything before that, it's who knows? Pamphlet and <laughs> Pamphlet and the smiley sticker. Anyway, the section two has placards and it has it's funny because I had never really scoured the Section 2 placards. There were other parts of the limitations obviously I'd looked at in the past, over the years, but the placards is interesting because when you get to this CFI bit, you really got it. You go down some rabbit holes and you have to have answers to all the questions or at least know where to find them, and some of the questions can be pretty, pretty harrowing. It drew the attention of my instructor when I started going through this Required Documents mnemonic of mine. When I got to placards, it, it really turned on a whole sea of questions, um, which I had to break out the POH, go to Section 2, start listing off, okay, (laughs) here are the required placards for this airplane, and start pointing to them and go, here's this one, here's that one, here's that. It's it's really simple. There's there's one that's basically a sticker that you see on a lot of 172s, and usually it's on the left-hand, inside the left-hand panel of the aircraft cockpit. Sometimes they're up a little higher and they're literally stitched into the uh, upholstery. Um, and it has a, a litany of information, uh, performance data and uh, limitations. Sometimes it's down lower. I think ours is down lower. Uh, in fact, uh, it's really near the uh, clear sleeve where the uh, registration and error and the certificate live. Yeah, you know, there's, and it includes everything. There's like our, our placard that's on the uh, flap limitation switch for our limit from 40 to 30. And then it adds other things like, uh, you know, obviously on the, uh, you gotta have the fuel tanks by the fuel caps, fuel filler caps. You gotta have the placard, you know, fuel type, fuel mount, all that jazz, but minimum octane, that sort of stuff. Uh, it, it delineates all that specifically, um, you know, there's placards in the cargo compartment, like on the door or somewhere in there. Uh, it'll have the, uh, that whole, uh, maximum weight of each part of the compartment. So it's like, what is it? one twenty and 20 and then max 120 adding them together um things like that summarily it's a good idea to go break open section two and the limitations and and take a look at those placards and uh crawl around your airplane see if you've got them all stuck on there the ones that are relevant yet again with ours you have the original poh some of that stuff still applies like the baggage compartment all that all that's the same that's still got to be there but then we have these revised uh placard requirements in the stc which also have to be accommodated so we've got two buckets there for accommodating placards in our uh, in our uh, poh biscuits so yeah it's kind of interesting uh, if you if you like that kind of thing i think one of the interesting placard scenarios that happened um this is a buddy of mine he and i got our private pilot license about the same time and i believe it was on his private pilot check ride the rental airplane he and i both trained in had uh had one of those vortex it was a Cessna 172 um P 172P 1981 model I believe and it was it's covered it's still out there it's, it's still there bless its heart it's been road hard and put up with, but it's still going um covered in vor- one of those vortex generators kits you know they those go down the top of the wings they're i think on top and underneath the uh, horizontal stabilizer and it's quite significant. The stall speed is 44.33 in that airplane. Uh, clean and dirty. 33 knots dirty. Flaps in, 33 knots. <laughs> so, And that's due to the uh, vortex generator. They're sticky. Uh, I will say, it's really interesting to try to stall that plane if you point the nose into the wind, you know, power off. It will slide backwards if you do it just right. Nevertheless, there is a placard in that aircraft and the examiner asked uh, my buddy I don't think he asked me or I had heard about it from my buddy and I knew the answer I don't think he asked me though he asked my buddy he said uh, hey how many of these vortex generators can be missing and the aircraft be airworthy or something to that effect it may have been how many how many have to be missing to trigger unairworthiness and he and I neither one uh, had noticed the placard about that in the airplane and it was on the instrument panel and it was kind of under the glare shield and my buddy didn't realize it was placarded i don't think and so um i happened to be flying the airplane after he he told me about this with the examiner it wasn't something the examiner was going to fail him on but it was just interesting and he mentioned it to me well i was flying by myself and i happened to lean over in the floor to get something and i my eyes just happened to fall across the instrument panel and glance up from a lower angle. The the glare shield was kind of hiding it. If you're kind of tall and he and I both are, there it was the placard and it told how many of those vortex generators could be missing after which any more than that, you got to put more on there. It's not airworthy. and I can't remember now, which it is. It's four. I think it's four. It may be five. Um, So in terms of placard world, that's kind of an interesting one. And I got to say, too, with a lot of interesting avionics and things going into the aircraft, there's some exciting stuff with the G5s and some of the other offerings. World is rife for placard mania. So that's a sort of a seemingly benign thing in a mnemonic, but I added it in and it turned into a kind of shower of sparks. And that is basically definitive of aviation geekdom. <laughs> you spend that long talking about placards for crying out loud, but it, it's it's uh, it's worth a look. See, you know, section it's in section two of any of the official uh, POHS, and it's kind of interesting for a for a Cessna one seventy two, just even a stock one. You would be surprised how many different things there are to uh, to placard. Uh, so yeah, rip yours out and take a peek at it. Some good nighttime candlelight reading material all right uh that ought to do it for me uh that's enough deep dive swimming in the sea of uh, aviation antics i think Uh comment question chime in don't really complain it's not really worth it um yeah uh, in sky review and Airtime or on the uh all the social medias i'm not a big social media user i will uh Acknowledge and respond. If you want to communicate through the website too, that's great. If you want to be on the podcast, there's actually a thing on the podcast page of the website you can actually fill out for that. And uh, I'm really interested in talking to anybody that has any interest in aviation. I'm I'm pretty agreeable and easy to get along with. So let me know. Skyreview.us. Airtime, a Sky Review podcast. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify and everywhere else. And, and the podcast players are on the website, too. You can just listen to it there on your browser, right out, even on your smartphone, on your browser. It's all available. All right, cheers. Fly safe. Do a a emergency briefing before takeoff every time. Have an abort point, a visual abort point every time. Do it. Do it. Okay, good. Fly safe. Cheers. 045 Tango outside Indu Two and a half miles on the ILS 13 full stop. Wind 1304 runway one three. by land.